kind of keeping with the, uh, by the way, I, I, most of you caught, probably caught that. I was about a thousand years off when I put that up there, but try to correct it. A little over 2,000 years ago, he uh, walked on this earth and uh, could be coming back soon. I hope it's soon. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the day you've given us. Lord, thank you for each and every soul that you brought into this room this morning. Lord, I pray that you speak to their hearts in a very special way. I pray, Lord, that you minister to them exactly where they need ministering to. And Lord, help us have a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for this event in the near future called the Judgment Seat of Christ. Lord, help us to accept the responsibility of being a child of God by allowing you to use us during the days of our salvation to glorify you and honor you and to please you. And Lord, I pray you'd speak to these hearts. Help us to be not only doers of the word, but hearers as well. And Lord, I pray this, you'll be pleased and blessed. And we ask it all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're talking about the judgment seat of Christ. We're talking about clay and the fact that uh, God wants us prepared for that day. So in keeping with my outline, I'm going to talk about when is that judgment seat of Christ. And I'm going to put a chart up here that uh, doesn't have any dates on it, but it has a bunch of events on it. And the first event, probably the most popular event that our Bible speaks about, that more verses are attributed to than any other event, and that's this big red arrow coming out of the sky. It's called the second advent. That's when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes back to planet Earth to touch down for the second time. We think it's going to be about 2,000 years after he rose from the dead. Uh, that second advent, that signals the end of a period of time on planet Earth that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. I, I don't know how long that period of time is. I think most people think it's seven years. Some think it's three and a half. Some have other opinions about it. That's really not pertinent to what I'm about to talk about because we should all be able to agree is what is that great tribulation about? Well, that's about in general, uh, there's going to be, during that period of time on planet Earth, there's going to be worldwide plagues, worldwide wars. There's going to be a, a, a terrible amounts of death, and because of all of those things, there's going to be much sorrow on planet Earth. There's going to be natural catastrophes and famines. There's going to be, you know, widespread frequently occurring earthquakes and volcanoes erupting and tsunamis and all kinds of stuff like that. It's going to be terrible, and it's not just the physical things going on during that tribulation. It's the spiritual wickedness and depravity. There's going to be four specific sins the Bible talks about during that time. Murder, sorcery, which includes drugs and alcohol, fornication, and thievery. One half of the total population of planet Earth will be killed during that time. Worldwide terrorism. It's going to be an awful time to be alive on planet Earth. However, this is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's, uh, this is the time when God pours out his wrath on the people on the planet. But God so loves his children, that's us, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, uh, we are called the bride, and we are called the church. Those are all synonymous with believers. Paul says the church will not go through the tribulation. That's a pretty clear biblical teaching. Paul said it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. He said the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. He said the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He's coming back, but he's going to meet us in the air. And then after that, judgment seat of Christ, which happens up in the air somewhere during that tribulation period, then after that's over, that judgment seat, we will follow him back at the second advent. And that'll be a battle of Armageddon. Satan will be bound. Then begins that 1,000-year millennial reign. You can see there's a not drawn to scale. This is a 1,000-year period of time, kind of pictured by the Sabbath rest. 
During that period of time, the Lord Jesus Christ himself will sit on a literal, physical, visible throne in the city of David, and he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. A lot of people have said, you know, this period of time on planet Earth is going to be kind of like a picture of heaven on Earth. And this period of time here, the tribulation, be kind of a picture of hell on Earth. Well, you know what happens even before hell on Earth, during the church age? A lot of people rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. During this tribulation people period, a lot of people are going to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. During this millennial reign period, Jesus Christ sitting there visibly, a lot of people are going to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. A sad thing, but true. Listen, at the end of that 1,000-year millennial reign, they say it's going to be maybe like the Garden of Eden. We know the crops are going to grow faster. Uh, Satan will be bound, so that takes care of some of the problems in the world. However, man has a sin nature, and we'll still have that sin nature. Uh, at least those that are, are born physically will be in our spiritual bodies by then. But this, after that period of time, is another major judgment the Bible speaks of called the Great White Throne Judgment. That judgment is primarily for lost people throughout eternity. All right? Now, there will be some people that are saved and come up with that judgment, but they didn't get saved during the church age because there will be people and their offspring that get saved during the tribulation and the millennial reign. Okay? So, but by and large, for lost people. Do not confuse those two judgments. This is a judgment for people. It's a temporary uh, stop on a way to an eternal lake of fire. Even the dead in hell will come up and be judged at that judgment. They'll have their day in court, so to speak. This judgment is for believers, and that's why we want to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In our King James Bible, we are fortunate to have the very words, judgment seat of Christ, twice. We're not going to look in Romans 14.10, that's the other time, but uh, we will look in 1 Corinthians 3 in a minute, and that's a lot of description about the judgment seat. The point I want to make is this. In my personal Bible reading, I've come across so far maybe 35 specific verses that some of them are very ambiguous, but most of them are very certain. They've directly referred to this judgment seat of Christ. And the point I would like you all to be thinking about is because when you read of the many verses talking about the rapture, I want you to think about, well, yeah, right after that's the judgment seat of Christ. When you read about the great tribulation, which is by way of the central 15 or so chapters of the book of Revelation, but it's also the book of Lamentations, uh, the book of, uh, I think, Habakkuk, Micah, Nahum, some of those books, it's all through the, uh, uh, the Psalms as well. It's also in Obadiah. When you're reading about that tribulation, you should be thinking, hey, that's when the judgment seat of Christ is going to be up in the air while that's going on on planet Earth. And then, of course, all those verses that talk about the second advent. So my point of bringing this out is so that when you read of the rapture, the tribulation, the millennial reign, you think of that in context of this judgment seat of Christ, which is the next big thing on the horizon for believers. That's the big thing. Okay, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to read first. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 10. Paul, writing to believers, says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So fairly clear, but we'll look at some other verses to really clear it up. We're going to be judged for our works as to what sort they are. He says in verse 11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What's all that about? He's not talking about the terror to get someone saved. He's talking to people that are saved. He's talking about when you're going to stand before God one day, can you imagine that? at the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to be trying your works, that's going to be terrifying. Look in verse 1. Leading up to what he's talking about here, verse 1 of the same chapter. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, look up here. If you were in Sunday school, you saw me take a dried a vessel just like this. It was dried. I put it in this vat of water, and what happened? It dissolved. That's literally what's going to happen to your body and mine if we pass from this life before the Lord comes back and gets us and we're in that ground for any length of time. That, that body is going to turn, it's clay, it's going to become dust again. That's just what's going to happen. 
we know that if this earthly house of the tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, verse 2, earnestly designed to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now, I want to talk about this idea of being naked, this idea of the terror of the Lord. Turn to the, keep your hand in Corinthians. We'll be back there in a second, but go to the back of your Bible, Revelation chapter 3. By the way, do you recall what uh, the Apostle Paul wrote at, to the church of Philippi? He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, he's talking about you're saved, then work out that salvation with fear and trembling. That fear of the Lord is a very healthy thing. By the way, that fear of the Lord is defined in Psalm 119, I think it's verse 120, where it says, my flesh trembleth for fear of thee. I am afraid of thy judgments. I mean, it ties right into this. If you're saved, you need to be afraid and fearful, really, of the judgment seat of Christ. It's a healthy thing. And if you're lost, then you need to be afraid of the great white throne judgment. And that's a real scary thing. I'd rather be fearful of this one. And not in a bad way, but just more of a concerned way, it's fearful for that. But fear of the Lord is a wonderful thing. I hope you have the fear of the Lord. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But he says, you know, don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, uh, but be partakers of the afflictions of the gospel. That's what he wants us to be doing. As children of God, we need to be partakers of those afflictions. And sometimes that word scares us. Afflictions, nobody likes to be afflicted. But you know what sometimes an affliction is? It's you and I going out of our way to thank God for his goodness. What does the Bible say? Let us therefore offer the sacrifice of God, uh, sacrifice of praise to God continually, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That's part of being a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, just being thankful, being grateful, but still going outside of our comfort zones, allowing ourselves to be uncomfortable and make ourselves available, just like that clay has to make itself available by being on the wheel so it can be shaped by God. So here in Revelation chapter 3, again, I got a, uh, another timeline up here. Let's see if I can do a better job with this one. Uh, John, we know, is writing to seven churches. Each one of those churches represents a period of church history. So we know in about 30 to 33 AD, Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross at Calvary. And uh, then John writes to these seven churches. When I say each represents a period of church history, I'm not saying it's an exact thing, uh, and they, they're not all the same uh, size of a period, and they overlap a little bit, so it's just a general idea. But he wrote to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And we know that church history ends when the rapture of the church takes place, okay? That ties in to this chart right here. The church we're going to read about is the Laodicean church. The word Laodicea means people's rights or civil rights. By the way, I'm going to forget to do this later. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you've taken at least a year of the Bible Institute here. All right, praise the Lord. I was just wondering how many people, I mean, what an opportunity to be in your home church and really learn the Bible. And I know you get that every week, but there's so much here. You know, you don't want to wait 20 years to get what you can in three, you know. And I hope you're always growing, and maybe I would encourage any of you. I, I told Pastor Marshall I actually turned 60 the week after I graduated. So when he asked me how old you were when you graduated, I said 59. But hey, a friend of mine who we prayed into Bible school, he was almost 70 when he graduated. Now, when I graduated and before I went to school, I was grateful having understood the judgment seat of Christ. I was thankful. I thought, boy, I hope the Lord gives me some, some time to do something that might survive the fiery trial of the judgment seat of Christ. And boy, that seemed like it was yesterday, but now it's 14 years later. And I'm thankful every day. I'm thankful he didn't call me out of this place before 2003 when I actually surrendered to him. Because I want to tell you something. I'd be standing before him one day at that judgment seat of Christ, and at a bare minimum, I know I would be naked 
and ashamed. So let's read about this Laodicean church here, beginning in verse 15 of Revelation chapter 3. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That is the Laodicean mantra. And I want to tell you something right now. You and I, no fault of our own, we live during this Laodicean age. That does not mean you have to be a Laodicean Christian. And I pray that you're not. You're in a church where to whom much is given of him shall much be required. So you are going to have no excuse at the judgment seat of Christ. There's people in other churches around this country, Christians, that are getting no doctrine, no teaching. They have no idea that there's a judgment seat of Christ because they're using a Bible that doesn't mention it. So how would they know about it? And their pastors aren't teaching them anything about it. They need to know about it. God wants them to know about it, even though their pastors aren't going to be the ones to tell them about it. That's part of our job. You know, when Jesus Christ uh, was getting ready to go on that cross at Calvary, he was trying to comfort his disciples. And he said, you know, I have to leave because when I leave, the comforter is going to come. Capital C, picture the Holy Spirit. He says, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the Great Commission. That's for us. You and I, if the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of us, we need to be reproving the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. That's our responsibility. He uses us as his mouthpiece. You know, Pastor DeMichael, if you were here uh, Wednesday night, brought a great message on soul winning. And that is a very important thing. And I want to encourage you if you are, I dare say without knowing hardly any people in this room, I'd say there's a, a big, a whole lot of you that don't have a lot of souls that you've won to the Lord. But are you doing what God wants you to do? And what I'm getting at is this. God has called some people to be in your face, out there soul winners. He has. They've got that personality. I know a guy, I correspond with him a couple times a week. He's in Tennessee and he goes to Gatlinburg four days a week. It's an hour each way. And he spends four to six hours every day handing out tracts and in your face witnessing to people. And he loves it. He lives for it. That's not me. But what's God, God, God want you to do? Does God want you to hand out tracts? Does he want you to teach a Sunday school? Does he want you to be praying for people? God's got something for everybody to do. And he that winneth souls is wise can apply to people that are part of a person coming to salvation doesn't have to be the final guy that puts the notch on his belt because he actually prayed with that person. But every one of us, it's incumbent upon us to reprove the world of sin, letting people know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Letting people know that uh, the righteousness of Christ is necessary to get in heaven. And you only get that by being in Christ. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags reproving the world of judgment, explaining to believers and lost people that there is a judgment seat of Christ for believers, for their works, and there's a judgment for lost people, the great white throne. And it's just a temporary holding pattern before they're cast into an eternal lake of fire. I love that track your pastor held up Wednesday night. My last six days, my first six days in hell, that's powerful. Do your part. Look at the Laodicean church age, they're materially blessed, and they think that's a sign of God's blessing. It's not. Look at the rest of that verse. Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind, and then we're naked. That's what most Laodicean Christians are. Laodicean Christians have done nothing that's going to survive the fiery trial of the judgment seat of Christ, and they're going to be up there one day naked and ashamed. He gives us the answer. He says in verse... Uh, 18, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Christian, every time you read the word shame, ashamed, every time you read it, every time you hear it, every time you think it, I want you to think about this judgment seat of Christ. 
and that the fact of the matter is you and I have the potential to be up there naked and ashamed. And it could be even worse than that. It's not just a place to get rewards, although that's part of it. But it's a place where you and I can have some very serious regrets. God doesn't want you to have those regrets. He will do the heavy lifting if we allow him to use us during the days of our salvation. Back in Corinthians. This time go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay that is, than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, those are three valuable things. <laughs> Wood, hay, stubble, those are three dead things with almost no value. Verse 13, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day. In my Bible, I circled the, way, the word day because it refers specifically to the judgment seat of Christ. You know that by the context. It says, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Very clear. You and I are going to be tried for our works as to what sort they are. It says down in verse 14, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward, referring to your earned inheritance, okay? You cannot lose your salvation at the judgment seat of Christ or any other time, but you can lose your rewards. What does the Bible say? Every wise woman plucketh, uh, every wise woman buildeth their house, but the foolish plucketh it down with their hands. That's a picture for the bride of Christ, for you and I. We're used to be building our spiritual house. And the fact of the matter is, the scriptures indicate that as we are allowing God to use us during the days of our salvation to do these good works that he wants to accomplish his purpose in our hearts and in others, he's up there building our spiritual house, maybe weaving the clothes and the cloth that go together for our spiritual garments that we're going to wear in heaven one day. All of this is happening in eternity or in another realm, a spiritual realm, while we are doing things in time, so to speak. Okay? I don't understand it all, but all these scriptures come together that way. He wants us to be fully clothed. He wants us, you know, that Bible, I, I don't know if you, read, you sing that song or not. Uh, I got a hilltop, I got a mansion over a hilltop. Most, most Bible believers, God doesn't say he, go, he went to prepare a mansion for you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I think if you're going to have a mansion up there, it's because you've allowed him to be building one for you as you're doing these works of service through his strength and not your own down here in time. That's, that's what I think. You know, I think that's what the Bible's teaching us. If any man's work abide which he had built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. That's a good thing. If any man's work shall be burned, verse 15, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Very clear. This is not about your salvation. It's about your service and earning something above and beyond. Now, just like everything else in our Bible, God gives us a picture, a picture of someone that's saved yet so is by fire, and that would be Abraham's nep uh, nephew, Lot. When God pulled Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he rained down that fire and brimstone and destroyed all of Lot's earthly possessions. Now, Lot is a type of a Christian saved yet so is by fire. I'm not saying that Lot is going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. He didn't live during the church age. He wasn't born again in that sense. But for us, he's a type or a picture, okay? Someone saved yet so is by fire. You and I might even question his salvation if we didn't know about Hebrews 11, where it talks about him seeming like he was just, okay? So, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's like Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus, Martha and Mary's sister? We know God raised him from the dead. That's all we know about him, but maybe he did all kinds of things that we don't know about because he's a type for us. Just like I mean, lots of type. Maybe Lot did some things that aren't recorded, but for as far as a type go, he's a saved yet so as by fire. That's not what God wants for any of his children. Saved yet so as by fire. Look down in, um, I think we'll wrap it up there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So very clear. Judgment seat of Christ for believers, judged for our works. I want to start to drill down on this uh, sanctification process. And to do that, we're going to talk about 
the eight stages that the potter puts the clay through. And I don't know where I can set this, but maybe the camera can get it there, but I don't know. Ah, not really necessary. If that falls down, it'll happen. Um, let me show you the eight stages a potter puts clay through. And then, especially tonight, we might get started a little bit this morning, but tonight we'll talk about how that relates to the spiritual process called sanctification. So the first thing a potter has to do if he's going to make something out of clay is he's got to dig the clay out of the ground. Pretty basic. Now, if you dig the clay out of the ground uh, and it's just been raining and the clay is near the surface, then that clay is going to be all sticky. That's one of the characteristics of clay. I got this clay off the ground in Tennessee, I don't know, 15, 18 years ago. But uh, in order for it to be processed, it has to be dried out. So I just brought you dried clay. Now, keep in mind the clay is the ground, right? Uh, when I poured this out, you might have noticed there's paper, there's branches, twigs, leaves. There's contaminants of all kinds in here. There's stones and stuff. Keep in mind the ground, animals travel over the ground, animals fly over the ground. Sometimes those animals leave behind stuff. That's not clay. I'm not going to say it, okay? It needs to be cleaned up, doesn't it? God, it's intuitive. Even the youngest person in here, and I don't see any very young people, but uh, knows that a potter can't just take this and start shaping something out of it. The clay has to be processed. So what the potter does, let's say he's got a gallon of clay by volume. He takes maybe five gallons of water and pours that clay into that water. Now, right away, some of those things float, like uh, the paper and the leaves and the branches, and those are removed. Then he takes all that's left in that bucket, all that water and clay and a few contaminants that are small, pours that into another vat. This time he puts a mesh, a screen between the two vats. And the screen is very fine. The only thing that'll pass through that fine mesh screen are the clay particles and all that water. And what does he end up with? Pure clay with a whole lot of water on top of it, just like I have right here. So the potter takes that water, pours it off, and now he's left with nothing but pure clay. That was his goal. But now he needs to firm up that clay. So what he does is he takes that clay and he puts it on an absorbent surface. You could put it on the wedging table in the studio. I could take it outside, put it on your sidewalk. Out on the sidewalk, I could let this concrete absorb the moisture. I could let the sun beat on it and dry it out and the wind blow on it and dry it out. At some point, the potter, when he realizes things are starting to firm up enough, he starts to rip parts, a piece of that big pancake of clay, and he brings those into his studio, and he begins to wedge the clay. Now, these are reminiscent of those pancakes. So he takes those pancakes, and I've already demonstrated this at length. Boy, I hate to touch this. Um, I've already demonstrated this. Most of you were in Sunday school. He uses this sharp wire up here, this absorbent surface on this wedging table. He begins to knead this clay, just like a baker uh, would knead dough. And what he's doing is he's getting rid of any air pockets. He's also homogenizing the clay because those pancakes were a little firm on the surface areas, but inside it was still kind of mushy. Just the opposite of the vessel that was marred. He's got to homogenize it. He does that by wedging the clay. And he does that until it's nice and homogenized and there's no more air pockets. Then he takes that wedged clay and it goes to stage four, which looks a lot like stage three because the clay just has to sit there. It's called the resting stage. What's the resting stage all about? Well, clay, if you were to examine it under a microscope, has very uh, unusual shaped molecules. They're long, skinny rectangles. All right, so think of a long, skinny rectangle like uh, a graham cracker. If you took a stack of graham crackers and piled them up here about 8, 10 inches tall, and then you started to push over the top, eventually they'd just fall over, wouldn't they? But with clay, you can squeeze that clay, and you can make it almost paper thin, and you can shape it with your hands, or you could do that on the potter's wheel. And at some point, you can bend it over, and it'll actually just stay like that. You see, it's got to do with those long, skinny rectangles of clay. Each one of them is surrounded by thousands of little ball bearings of water, so it allows those rectangles to slide one upon another. But there's a third factor, and that factor is stickiness. 
And that stickiness is caused when bacteria begins to grow in the clay. And that takes time. So that clay needs to be rested for four to six to eight weeks. Some potters have clay that's rested for years because the longer it rests, the more uh, plastic, plastic it becomes, more, has more plasticity, more stretchability. Let me put it that way. Clay has to be rested. Once it's rested, it's put on the potter's wheel and shaped. Now I'm going to shape one more vessel up here. I've already mentioned to you uh, this, this wheel goes round and round. It's really a, a picture of planet Earth going round and round and round. And uh, what God is doing, if you are submitting to him and you are on the wheel of life, he's going to shape you and mold you through those very circumstances that he allows you to go through. It's a picture of day after day, night after night, you're going round and round, round and round. I don't know if, I know there's some people that have tried working on the potter's wheel. Raise your hands again if you have. Oh, all kinds, okay. The hardest thing, and all these people will verify that, the hardest thing before a potter can shape anything on the potter's wheel, he has to center the clay on the wheel. And it's just about next to impossible, this part that's actually right down on the, the wheel itself, usually takes a wooden tool like this and kind of scrapes that away. But the rest of it, to get centered, the, the potter has to really muscle the clay, and he pushes it in such a way to push it up and make it taller. And once he's got it tall, then he lowers it. And I mention this because centering is the most difficult thing there is on the potter's wheel. And you know what? The most difficult thing for you and I is to center ourselves on the Lord Jesus Christ and find the center of his will for our lives. That's what he wants for us. Once the clay is centered on the potter's wheel, and he's got it, what do I mean by centered? I mean when you can hardly tell that it's spinning. So there it's centered, there it's not. See the difference? If I was to take it like that and try to open a perfectly round hole in it, one side of that clay would be thick and one would be thin. That's pretty obvious. So the clay, because I'm going to open a perfectly round center opening in it, the clay itself has to be perfectly centered around a central axis. Once the clay is centered, the potter with a lot of pressure begins to open it. Now, when I was in college and just learning to make pottery, I took a bag of powdered clay, and they had a big tub there that they, it's like a dough mixer, I think. And they actually used it to mix clay. Now, the clay was pure. It was already uh, pure of any contaminants. It had just been dried out and powdered for them. So I mixed it with water. I took it over to the wedging table and wedged it for a little while. And then I took it over to the potter's wheel and began to shape a cylinder like I'm shaping right now. And what the potter's doing is he's taking that clay and he's squeezing it from the inside and the outside. And as he's squeezing it, he's lifting. And he starts at the bottom and squeezes together a little bit. And then as he starts to squeeze together, the clay just comes up. When I was in school with that fresh bag of clay, it had not been rested. And I didn't even get to this point. I was trying to pull up that cylinder, and you know what happened? All of a sudden, it just broke. And I'm holding on to the top of it, and the bottom is just spinning around. That clay had no plasticity. It had no stretchability. It had not been rested. This, when we get to it tonight, is the most overlooked part of the spiritual walk, the resting stage. You and I need to find a way to get quiet before the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. I don't want to get into tonight's message, but that's something we have a real trouble with. You're at a church here that, praise the Lord, you've got all kinds of ministries going. And you know what? You can get too busy sometimes with ministry. Now, I'm not knocking any ministry, but you can't be involved with every ministry that this church has to offer. But God's got certain ministries he does want you involved with. You need to prayerfully consider which ones they are and then do get involved. Your vocation, your calling is a whole lot more important to God than your occupation. You need to find out what that vocation is, what that calling is, and allow God uh, to perform his will through your acts of service. Once that potter has shaped the vessel to his liking on the potter's wheel, that thing is just set aside to dry. This has been drying for a long time, many months, since I had to replace it. Then it goes into a kiln for what's called the low firing. 
When it goes in that kiln, it's fired to a temperature of about 1,800 degrees. Your typical kitchen oven goes up to about 600. So this is a whole lot hotter. What happens during that firing is it gets hard. Not only does it get hard, but it gets waterproof. So as this thing, if I put it in a jar of water, it would dissolve just like that little one did. But this, now that it's been fired, I can set it in this bucket of water, and it'll just absorb that water, and you'll actually see it evaporate on there. But it will never get soft. Even if I left it in there for an hour or a week or a year, it will never get soft again. So the potter, that's important because the seventh stage is to take that fired vessel and put a glaze coating on it. Now that glaze coating is nothing more than uh, the chemicals that form glass when they're fired, primarily silica, uh, and there's some other chemicals as well that do colorants. In order to apply the glaze to this particular piece, I took the piece like this, and just like I dipped it in the water, I dipped it in this reddish-brown glaze, and I dipped the whole thing in there and pulled it out, and whatever's inside, I let that pour back into that bucket. Then I took that thing after it dried for about 30 seconds. I took it over to another bucket of glaze, a gray colored, and I dipped it up to about here. And you can see where those two glazes overlap. So the glaze does not turn into glass until it goes into the next firing. That's a high firing. That's about 2,200 degrees. And that's when the glaze coating turns to glass. See the difference in color? This is the same glazes on both pieces. That's how much it changes in the firing. And I, I know this is a little hard to see, but um, if you were to see the heights of these, they were the same height at one time, but now they're not. This one is shorter. And that has to do with that extreme heat of the glaze firing. What happens in the glaze firing, although the glaze is on the surface here in stage seven and could be washed off so it looks just like this, in the high fire atmosphere of the kiln, the pores of that clay actually open up and allow the molten glaze to trickle into those open pores. And then as the thing begins to cool down, those pores are closed up. What am I saying? I'm saying that in high fire stoneware pottery, the glaze is bonded to the pot. It's not just on the surface anymore. There's parts of it that have soaked in and it becomes bonded to the pot. It's very hard to chip high-fire stoneware because of that bonded nature. That's important because when we talk about charity, charity is the bond of perfectness. Okay? So just to refresh, the potter digs the clay out of the ground. It's unusable. Matter of fact, it's hard. It's contaminated. Has serves almost no purpose. You know, just from seeing some of the things I've made out of clay, and keep in mind that clay is used in the steel industry, the building industry. Uh, brick is clay. Kaopectate is clay. Kaolin. Uh, kitty litter is clay. <laughs> clay has all kinds of uses, some of them not so glamorous. Porcelain, porcelain teeth, that's a type of clay. The tiles on the space shuttle, clay. There's movies made out of claymation. I think Brother Gipps involved with one. Uh, there's instruments out of clay. Clay, it's kind of like the peanut, you know, it's got, it's so abundant, it's got lots of uses. But those uses all require that the clay be processed. Because right here, there's very little you can use this for. And you know the sad picture is? This is a picture of a lot of Laodicean Christians. They're saved. They've been dug out of the darkness and captivity of Satan's kingdom. But when God looks at them, he sees this hard, contaminated heart that has not submitted itself to the sanctification process and thereby he can't use that vessel for his honor and glory to any degree, not to the degree that he created. God wants us to become that vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use. That's what he wants. He wants to get pleasure from our lives in all kinds of ways. So it's dug out. It's softened and decontaminated. It's cleaned up. Then it's uh, dried out and wedged. It's rested, very important, so it gets that strength to withstand the pushing and the pulling and the stretching of the shaping process. Once it's shaped, it's fired in the low firing to get uh, nice and hard. The glaze coat is applied, and then that glaze coat becomes serviceable when it's put in the fire and fired to that high temperature. That's the eight-stage clay process. How am I doing? I'm going to think we'll take uh, 
We'll read a couple more verses, and then we'll dismiss. First uh, Corinthians 13, are you there? Tonight, when we come back, we're going to read about the eight-stage sanctification process I already mentioned in Sunday school. It starts with faith, and it ends with charity, okay? There's eight steps to it. But let's see what Paul writes about charity here in 1 Corinthians 13. If most of you have never been to another church that, uh, and most of you have always been in the King James Bible, uh, maybe you don't appreciate the blessing you have. You've got a chapter here that's all about charity. And every other church that's using all these other Bibles, it's called the great love chapter. Why? Because they don't have the word charity in it. And charity is a special kind of love. Uh, Brother Kyle Stevens wrote a great book on that, um, The Certainty of the Words of Truth, and he talks about charity. And Sam mentions it too, in the, uh, I think, in the answer book. Uh, he talks about love and the difference between agape and phileo, which is just a made-up thing. But listen, charity is really special. Kyle Stevens brings it out. Charity is a special kind of love. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Five letters, all the same, not really a word. But this is how similar they are. You put the letter S in here, you get Christ. And you do this, A-Y, and you get charity. That's how similar Christ and charity is. We just don't associate that because they don't sound anything alike. But Kyle Stevens brings out the point that every time God uses the word charity in our King James Bible, it's a special kind of love expressed only by Christians toward other Christians. That's the way God uses that word. Maybe we're guilty of using it differently. That's okay. But I'm just saying, charity is special. It's why you don't find the word in the Old Testament, because nobody was in Christ in the Old Testament. Charity is a New Testament word. Let's see what Paul says about it. Charity, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though, I gift of gift, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, that all, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. The next several verses give, uh, I think, 15 or 16 aspects of charity. I guess the 16th one would be verse 8, which is one of the most exceeding great and precious promises in our Bible. Three words, charity never faileth. I'm going to spoil it a little bit for tonight, but here's the deal. If you and I, along with God, would like to see our works come out of that spiritual fire as silver, gold, and precious stones, they have to be done while we're partaking of God's divine nature of charity. And you just don't say, well, I'm going to leave church this morning, and I'm going to head down the road, and I'm going to do something with charity. Well, you might say that, but you can't really do it if you haven't added to your faith virtue, and the virtue of knowledge, and the knowledge of temperance, and so on and so forth. That's a process. Just like this is the process. I can't just take this clay and say, okay, I'm going to put it on the potter's wheel and shape it, Right? It's got to go through this step, and it has to be done correctly, and then this one, and this one. And sometimes you do one of those steps, and it's not done quite as well as it should. Maybe I miss a little stone in there, and maybe I still am able to shape it into the vessel I want, and that stone is still in there. It's going to show up. It's going to show up in that firing. It might explode, or it might crack, or it might warp. And all of those little shortcuts we try to take in our spiritual walk, they show up. And they translate into wood, hay, and stubble, which comes through a spiritual fire as ashes. God doesn't want you with a big pile of ashes at the judgment seat of Christ. He wants you to have those spiritual, uh, the, the gold, silver, the precious stones. He wants to reward you with crowns and a mansion and fine clothing and all the other things, that earned reward and earned inheritance. That's what he wants for you. So charity never faileth. What I'm getting at is you leave here, you say, I'm going to go do this with charity. Well, praise the Lord if you do. Because you could go to the gas station and you could uh, hand somebody a gospel track, and they could look at it and ball it up and throw it at your feet. And you say, well, I'm never doing that again. Well, did you do it with charity? Charity never failed. And that's what I'm getting at, kind of tag-teaming my brother DeMichael's message Wednesday. Listen, for most people to get saved, it's not just hearing the gospel one time. 
It's just not reading a gospel tract one time. All those things combine eventually for someone to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I mean, sometimes it's the case a guy just hears it one time and that's it. That's all it takes. But for most people, it's a process. So what I'm encouraging all of you in this room to be doing is looking for those opportunities to be part of that process. And then, yes, he that winneth souls is wise. You are part of that process. Do your part. God's got a part for every one of us. That's why he made many members in the body and placed everyone in the body as it pleased him. He's got a part for all of us. He's made you unique because of that. Charity never fails. If you do things with charity, the results are not up to you and I. If the Lord leads you to hand somebody a gospel tract, praise the Lord. If you do that, then that was a successful thing. That will survive the fiery trial of the judgment seat of Christ. So that's kind of a synopsis of where we're going tonight. And what I encourage you to do is do your very best to pray that the Lord might orchestrate the circumstances of your life. Make yourselves available to come back tonight at 545. Is that when you start? Okay. Tough times to remember here. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, come on back, and uh, we'll really get into the meat of this message. God would love to see you up there one day, and he would love to be able to force, force to just dole out all these crowns and different inheritances upon everyone in this room. That's what he wants. Just like you like to bless your children, maybe with great gifts at Christmas time or their birthday or whatever, God will bless us with things when we don't really deserve it. But then when we deserve it, he's, he really lays it on. He opens the windows and pours out those blessings upon us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've shown us and are showing us through this judgment seat of Christ. Lord, help us to do everything in our power to make ourselves available to you, to be used of you, to please you and to glorify you, and to demonstrate your power working through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Pastor? All right. In just a moment, uh, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And uh, let me encourage you to consider something right now. Uh, maybe a lot of this about the judgment seat of Christ is uh, new to you. For some, you've, you've heard this before and you know it. But one thing that has struck me this morning between Sunday school and the morning service is uh, how serious am I about that? You know, is that just, uh, oh, yeah, that's going to happen. Okay, you know, check that box real fast and skip over it. But it's a reality. And um, you know what it is? My wife and I were at a cemetery the other day, and we were reading a bunch of the headstones. And one thing every headstone has in common, they always have the person's name at the very least. And then they have their birthday and their day of their death. But you know what their life looks like on that headstone? A little hyphen. A little hyphen. And our lives are short, folks. They're short. And one of these days, we're going to have to give account for that little hyphen. And uh, maybe you just want to spend a little time in prayer this morning saying, Lord, I don't know what else you want to show me today, but help me to get serious about it. I've told you before, one of the best definitions of the fear of the Lord that I know is living life in light of judgment. People, a lot of times when they get ready to do something wrong, they always take some inventory. Well, if so-and-so finds out, what will they think? And if my spouse finds out, what will they think? And if this friend finds out, will I lose them or will they be okay with it? And all these other things. How about this one? How's it going to look in front of God at the judgment seat of Christ? Because in the end, that's the end game, folks. That is the end game. So I think sometimes we're just not as serious about these matters as we should be. Maybe we just need to go to the Lord today and just say, Lord, help me. Help me with that whole concept to live life in light of that. Because if we do, then there's certain things that are just off the table. They're no-brainers. And there are other things that are certainly on the table, and they're no-brainers in their own way, too. All right, what number do we have, brother? We'll do number 494. 
494. 494. Let's stand and sing. The altar is open if you want to come. Number 494. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I Thank you, Brother Angus Seth, and we'll look forward to tonight. You are dismissed.